Three billion human lives ended on August 29, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. And welcome to another episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana, and what you were just listening to was the iconic Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, in the opening scene of Terminator 2. She's talking about the destruction that took place in 1997, when the artificial intelligence called Skynet became self-aware and decided to wipe out the entire human race. Of course, that part of the movie's prediction never happened. But today, we do live in a world surrounded by automation and artificial intelligence tools. Like, for example, the Amazon Echo, chatbots, and cars that warn you when you're too close to the vehicle in front of you, or the little diligent robot that vacuums my home every day. What you may be less aware of is how much automation and artificial intelligence is also part of your company's human resource functions. There are tools that decide who gets interviewed, how much they'll get paid, and much, much more. The fact is that these new smart tools that are steadily entering your organization can either help or impede your efforts to make your organizations more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive. So it's important that you learn something about these tools and how they work so that you can be aware and ready to take action to ensure that they support your efforts. In this episode, we're gonna take a quick dive into the world of automation and artificial intelligence in the modern workplace. We're going to look at why companies want these tools, how they work, and where biases counter to your efforts might create been and what you and the Office of DEI can do about it. I've got a great guest lined up for this discussion, but before we turn to him, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Behringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. Let's meet our guests. 
He currently works for ADP, one of the top-ranked companies in the human capital management space. His skill sets span across a number of key areas, including business strategy, marketing strategy, market research, and product management. Prior to his current position with ADP, he spent three years at the Boston Consulting Group. He's a Fulbright Scholar with a Master's in Data Science from UC Berkeley and a Master's in Intellectual History from Princeton. My name is Amin Vinjara. I'm the Chief Product Owner and VP of Product Management for ADP's Data Cloud. Hi, Amin. Welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what ADP does and your role in delivering value to ADP clients. So sitting in human capital management and the position that ADP is, we pay just about 30 million people each month. We've seen 90 million unique uh, individuals in our database over the past 10 years in the U.S. There's another 10 plus million folks that we pay globally. We have billions of time punches that we see, right? So it's there, there's a lot of data sources that are coming in, not just pay, but human capital more broadly. All that data, because of ADP's reach from the smallest peach the shop all the way to multinational organizations, gives us a unique perspective on what's happening in the world of work. And so ADP over 70 years has played a role in being able to be effective in, in helping to manage those transactions, make them easier, simpler, and compliant. What we realize, though, is, is also that data has meaning. That data has meaning for insights that can be drawn on what's happening in the world of work. Now, those in insights can be used at multiple levels. They can be used at the individual company level to know, in my data, what are the trends that are happening? What are the anomalies? What's, ha what's going on? But you can also use it at the cross-company level for benchmarks, training sets for AI and for machine learning services that we create. And even, honestly, nationally, we actually have had some papers published with economists using our data to look at the state of the, the U.S. economy. And that's actually proven pretty effective and, and a pretty effective measure based upon the research that's been done so far. So in my role, it's thinking about the data cloud as constructing that full platform so we can bring all the data together. And then I think critically for this conversation is think about how data can turn into intelligence. Yes, absolutely. I mean, before we jump into that, let me just talk for a minute to explain to our listeners how these machine-generated programs work versus traditional human programming. So let's say that the purpose of a program is to tell us if a loan applicant is likely to repay their loan. In traditional programming, a human programmer writes a program that looks for things that the programmer thinks are factors that indicate a person will repay their loan. Things like... They make more than X in annual earnings. Their outstanding debt is below Y. And they repaid 100% of their past loans and so on, etc. The program then looks for those factors in applicants to determine if the applicant should get the loan because they're likely to repay it. In a machine-generated program, we're talking about a machine algorithm, which is a program generating the program. So basically, we give this program called an algorithm a lot of information about people who got loans. Things like names, addresses, salaries, how long they worked at their jobs, past loan repayment history, etc. 
and whether or not they repaid their loans. In effect, we give the algorithm everything with no judgment as to whether it's important or not. Then we ask the program slash algorithm to determine what common factors or factor combinations were present in all instances where the loans were repaid and to generate a program a program generated by this algorithm or program that looks for those factors in new loan applicants. So in the first case, the human programmer told the program what to look for, whereas in the second case, a machine algorithm or program generated the loan application processing program. A human didn't tell that program what to look for, a machine algorithm did. And that's basically it. So with that covered, Let's get back to what ADP is doing. So, I mean, how are your clients using the services that ADP provides using data from these machine-generated programs? So, for example, when you're trying to figure out, like, to price a job, I want to figure out, I want to benchmark a job. I want to understand what I should pay for a particular job. Now, most all companies that, that you know, we talk to, they have this exercise they go through where they have to create a job uh, hierarchy and a mapping of their jobs to some taxonomy. They'll do this with a compensation a survey vendor or however else. Maybe they have a job, archi- a job architecture that they'll use and then they'll map that back. That's a time-consuming exercise, right? And it's a fundamental exercise that machine learning is very good at, which is classification. Mm-hmm. Right, machine learning knows how to say this thing fits in this group, and if I learn enough examples that this thing is in this group, I can then know how to take other things I've never seen before and put them with good confidence in a group that they should belong in. So how do you do? So how does that operate in HR context? I want to understand my job architecture because without understanding how my workforce is composed and then marking that to market, I can't operate effectively. When I have a group of jobs that will say, okay, sit in a technology department, right? For example, groups that like we have, what's a product manager versus a developer versus a UX designer versus a UX researcher? These are all different jobs. It may not be immediately obvious to somebody who's not deep in it, but we can decompose the skills, the jobs, and also compare it against all the other jobs that we're seeing in the market to then know how to classify these jobs to a standard taxonomy. And it takes away that manual work of having to do that. And we actually do that today. So the the government has a a set of jobs with job descriptions that's around 900 jobs. We've created our own proprietary taxonomy of 9,000 jobs. And and then we've created a classifier, uh, a machine learning algorithm that's trained up on all of the data we see across our clients to be able to map the jobs that they have to those 9,000 jobs. And we actually do that and create a way in which you can then interact with the algorithm to see, okay, do I agree with this or not? Do I confirm it or not? But the initial work is done for you, then you can do it, and then you can get access to all these benchmarks to say, what's the base salary for this job? What's the base salary for this job in Ohio versus suburban New York City versus San Francisco versus Dallas-Fort Worth? And then I could say the overtime, the bonus, and all these kinds of compensation and total rewards metrics that I need. So that's one, right? That's one use case. Another is around just where you're saying, 
okay, I, I want to be able to understand all this data that I have. How can I understand and, and parse through this data to know what are the, the top insights that I should be focused on? So one of the big challenges that a lot of companies are facing is there's just volumes of data coming at everybody. So where should I focus? Machine learning is also good at this. You can take machine learning to be able to say, let me surface the insights that people like you are paying attention to, right? Just like YouTube or Netflix are, are, are doing, we have a recommendation engine that enables us to surface the metrics or the insights you should pay attention to and then also learns from what the users are reacting to surface what matters to you most. Another one is the, this question around people who are at risk of leaving the company. This has been a, a use case that has popped up across the industry of saying, what can I use to, to help understand, is somebody at risk of leaving the company? Can I get insight into that? And then can I use that to you know, have a conversation and make sure I can keep as many people as possible at the company. So for example, you'd think, okay, I could look at their compensation versus the market. Maybe that's gonna be a driver. I'm gonna look at their commute distance. Now, is commute distance or commute time the factor that you should weigh more? Another one is, one that we've actually found to be pretty interesting is the compensation of an individual relative to people who live around them. Because oftentimes what companies will look at is the, as I, in these turnover predictor models is these kinds of things like commute distance, compensation versus the market and versus other people at the company. But, but also you live in a context, you live in a neighborhood with people that are around you, your compensation relative to people where you live has a factor in that. So we've taken the, the elements of our data together to be able to look at and then create a predictive model that can assess that risk and then decompose the factors to, to look into it. So that's a range of examples of where AI can apply today. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it does, however, raise a question. So let's focus on taxonomy, which is job classification. This is generally done by using job titles. Now, way back in my career, when I was working with a large multinational organization that had several business units, I discovered that job titles often had little to do with the work that people actually perform. For example, I found that in one business unit, there could be a woman handling travel contracts who was called a travel coordinator. In another business unit, there could be a man doing the same exact job who was called the VP of travel. If you looked at the two jobs really closely, these two people were doing exactly the same thing, totally identical. But an AI looking at just titles could assume that he was more senior and should get a higher salary. How do you prevent that from happening? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and for sure, this is something that we, we think carefully about. So uh, a couple things here. One is the classification models that we use, again, it depends upon uh, the data that's entered by the, the companies themselves. And some of these things will occur in, in the data that's presented because we can read the data and then do the classification. Now, the first step you can take is to present that back to the user right? To say, and, and to make that really easy, because people talk about this concept of UI for AI, a user interface for AI. So it's really easy to understand. What did you do? What did that model just do? So I can understand and we make sure that's really important. So we took the job that you said is travel coordinator 
and mapped it to this standard job, which is a travel specialist, let's say. I'm, I'm making it up. And it has this job description. Do you agree? And the first is just to present that back to the user so they can understand it. And it has a job description and it has skills, right? So there's, a, there's an opportunity for somebody to be able to operate at that level. Now, that's great because people who can be careful with their data, they, they will engage and be able to check it and make sure it's right. Now, as we know, that's going to cover a certain percentage of the population, not everybody. Okay. So next level up is to say, can we interrogate the data so that the first is you look at a, a, a pre-processing stage, you look at the in-processing stage, and the post-processing stage. Yes. And, and generally, you should move as early in the pipeline as you can. That's the preference. Got it. So in your explanation of what can be done to address biases before programs go live, you use the terms pre-processing, in-processing, and post-processing. So since most of our listeners are probably not familiar with those terms, I just want to take a moment to provide a quick layman's definition of these terms. So pre-processing refers to how you prepare data before feeding it to the algorithm. So here, you might say remove certain factors that you think might bring bias to the program. So say before giving data to the system that's going to build the loan application I was talking about earlier, you might take out age. In the in-processing step, that refers to modifications to the algorithm that's going to generate the actual program. So again, with our loan example, you might have age in the data that you're giving the program, but you tell the algorithm to ignore that and not to use it in determining loan worthiness. And finally, in the post-processing step, that has to do with techniques that are used to remove biases after the algorithm has processed the data, fed into it, and created the loan application review program. And in this category, there's a whole number of tools, and they're all pretty technical. But the bottom line is that all of these are techniques that are used at various stages of creating an AI to remove biases before the new program gets out into service. So back to our discussion. One of the things that occurred to me as you were talking about paying people according to what others earn who live in their neighborhood is the danger of underpaying people in certain race or ethnic groups because they live in a particular zip code versus somebody else who does the same job but lives in the zip code that's considered more affluent. And to me, that's an example of a problem that might be fixed by some of these tools that you talked about before the program gets out. But what about if it doesn't get fixed and the program gets out? The question is then, what happens is if biases get past these various measures? And I don't think that people who use these programs can just assume that these AIs are coming out bias-free and perfectly tuned despite all of these measures, right? I think that having an AI in a company is like having a child. There's always going to be a need for some constant form of supervision and for some corrective action from time to time, right? I'm going to make two comments on that. Number one, I've noticed in some of the popular discourse around this, you know, this idea that AI will be unbiased. And there is this notion, I think there was even a New York Times article, like uh, initially, like a 2015 or so, I saw some discussion around this where you know, it, it, as if this is going to come without bias. No. And even, so I'm, I was trained as a historian 
And going into the archive, it, the same discussions I found as a historian, there's a famous philosopher, Hans-George Gadamer, and he has this, this uh, quote, he says, the prejudice against prejudice is prejudice. And he's talking about the enlightenment. He's talking about how this idea of going into a total objective reality and choosing truth and, and, and determining truth with the capital T, as if it can be done without bias. But no, we are, everybody has those biases. And the data that we come with has those bias. So very quickly, let me jump in here and say, I'm so glad you said that on this program. I recently completed a study in January 2021 as part of my work with the CDO Power Circle with about 74 senior HR leaders. And one of the questions I asked was, do you think AI tools will automatically increase your company's diversity, equity, and inclusion or decrease your company's diversity, equity, and inclusion, or that it really depends? North of 60% said they believe that just bringing in AI will automatically take human bias out of the equation and increase their diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that myth is unfortunately still alive in a lot of people who bring these systems in-house. So I just wanted to add that in there, but please continue. What's your point number two? Point number two is I think your living example is fantastic because these models live. And so when you take on an AI, you have to have the monitors to be able to see what's happening with the data, what examples are coming in. The other topic that's not discussed that much, but model drift, because the, the data starts to shift. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to know and be able to understand what training examples are coming in and how is it different than the initial training set that was happening. And so yes. you're actually, your algorithms will start to drift based upon the new data that's coming in. And, it, and the other problem is, if the world is shifting and you just don't have updated training of your models, you're on a snapshot of the world that's dated. Those are great points, I mean. So we don't want the algorithm to drift in the wrong direction. We need to be involved in monitoring and guiding the performance of these systems to reduce bias, keep them on track, and help them to evolve as our society evolves. Okay, so let's pause here and take stock of what we've learned in this information-packed first segment of this episode. One, over the last couple of decades, organizations have collected a lot of data about employees. And now we have the tools that can turn that data into intelligence. Things like who should we hire based on various types of people and how they performed in the past? What should we pay someone based on what others pay for similar work in various regions? Two, the desire to save time and cut costs is driving companies like yours to use these tools. Things like determining how much to pay an employee can be done much faster using these systems than by a human. Another example would be scanning resumes. According to one study I read, a high-performing recruiter can review a resume in six seconds. An AI system, however, can review 600 resumes in one second, so cheaper, and faster are driving more companies to adopt these tools. Three, AI, however, does present new diversity, equity, and inclusion challenges. Like for example, screening out women in underrepresented groups from a candidate pool because of parameters that have nothing to do with the ability to do the job. Or a woman potentially getting paid less because her job title 
was coordinator versus a man performing the same function with a VP title, or a person of color getting paid less because they live in a zip code where the AI database shows that lower wage people live compared to a white colleague who lives in a zip code that's considered a bit more tony. The belief that these systems are unbiased because they're machines only looking at so-called pure data is a myth. All AI systems like their human creators and users have biases. Four, some potential biases can be addressed when a new program is being built by taking a number of different steps along its development. One is to prepare the training data that will be fed into the system so it doesn't provide a picture that is unfavorable to one group of people. The other is to put regulators into the algorithm that's processing the data to build the system with instructions not to give too much or too little weight to certain factors in the final program. So say for example, even though most of the executives in a particular company historically played golf, that regulator may tell the system not to give too much weight in determining who to hire based on whether or not they played golf. Or conversely, even though historically the company didn't hire a lot of people of color who live in a certain zip code, the regulator might tell the system not to weigh that zip code as a disqualifier for job candidacy. And finally, we can use programs that challenge the results of our new program to determine if it's making decisions fairly. So there's a lot that can be done to screen out bias early in these pre-live production stages. And finally, five, despite all of these different tools that can be used in pre-production, organizations that buy these tools still need to monitor and regulate them. Why? Because A, over time, these systems as they're being used are learning and the model may drift away from its original anti-bias ethics guardrails. And B, because our society evolves and we want these systems to evolve with us. We don't want our people decisions in 2051 being made using a system whose reference to fairness and equity come from 2021. No more than we would like to have our people decisions in 2021 made by a system whose reference to fairness and equity is from the 1950s. So it's important to continue to monitor these and to update them. In the next segment of this interview, we're going to turn our attention to exploring how you can get involved in this digital revolution, whether you're technical or not, in order to support equity and inclusion for your community. But before we do that, let's revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. I'll see you on the other side. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors. Behringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. And we're back. Let's rejoin Amin. So, Amin, our listeners are non-technical people for the most part. 
What are the challenges they face when it comes to getting involved in shaping these tools? I'm sure that a women's group or a Latinx group or any of these other groups could probably identify a host of biases that need to be addressed. Yeah, I, I think there's obviously like the, the benefit of as many perspectives as we can. Here's what I've seen, which is being able to translate between what the data science teams are doing and what parameters are, are operating with. Somebody who is not trained in this area can understand it is a gap. And the effort it takes to explain to somebody the technique that a data scientist used and translate how that impacts in something somebody can understand in kind of a, a, a you know, common language, it's just difficult. And this is a key challenge. Got it. So how do you get around that? I mean, there's been these uh, discussions around data science, you know, like McKinsey has these reports pointing out that this role of this translator is so critical. And so is it really the most important thing to have all those people around the table or to, to make sure we have the right translators that can capture that, you know, input and be able to share back? That's one. So having good translators is one way of getting around that. What's another? The second is really around the metrics that are used. To have people understand metrics like disparate impact, the feel index, statistical parity difference. These are some metrics that can be applied to the data that can test for the existence or absence of bias. Because if you can have a few metrics that, that you don't have to understand all the details, but if I can understand how to interpret that metric if this metric is further than one, if it's less than one or greater than one, what does it mean? Both that the data science teams know to use them as part of how they're evaluating models, but also that the, the advising committees are literate enough in that capability to be able to have that conversation. And, and maybe this is where the two worlds can come together. And I think that is the key. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like a good way for non-technical people who are interested in ensuring that these systems are supportive of diversity, equity, and inclusion, that for them, there are two places where they can get involved. One, forming a relationship with the translator who acts as that liaison between the users of an AI tool and the technical teams. And two, by providing their companies AI oversight committees with metrics or recommended rules designed to weed out biases. So, I mean, how can resource group leaders find out more about what their companies are already doing in terms of having bias, ethics, and principle statements for AI, as well as having monitoring groups? Most companies are now uh, creating and shaping statements of AI ethics and principles. And you know, the place to go would probably be, you know, your head of technology, maybe your privacy officer, uh, maybe somebody in legal, there'll be different places, but the, I, that I would reach out uh, and say, can I understand that? Can I see it? Uh, you might, there might be a blogs like at ADP, we've published a set of our ADP uh, AI uh, ethics principles, right? Um, so the first thing is to understand that what's being done. Uh, and then to, to build on top of that, is there a board, an AI ethics board, right? And who's part of it? Because if you want to have the right representation, right, you want to have uh, uh, folks from lots of different perspectives present. And you can ask, does this exist? Uh, if so, who's on it? What gets reviewed, right? And understand, can you help? Can you participate? Uh, another another uh, lever in this in AI is, is what's 
you know, a trend that we're seeing of how self-governance is happening within companies uh, is around these um, bias impact statements. So a bias impact statement is a way of articulating in a particular AI machine learning project, um, answer some basic questions about what you're trying to accomplish and, and just create some discipline around what are the potential adverse impacts. So questions like, which groups are we worried about when it comes to data error or unfair treatment or impact? Let's have, let's have that articulated and written down. What are the potential bad outcomes, right? Uh, do we think that the training data is sufficient, sufficiently diverse for the purpose that, that it's intended for? By making that a part of the process, uh, it can then, and especially if those uh, bias impact statements are then part of what gets of projects that are reviewed by an AI ethics board, it allows those that discussions to be explicit, to have a, a, a conversation where all the, those ideas are on the table and it's part of a conversation that everybody can engage in. So I think if you're an ERG leader, you're sitting in a, a group and you want to understand, I think even having some of these words, right, of what to ask for, who to ask it of, it allows you to get into a conversation, read more, be intelligent, and, and then do something that, that's not just only um, maybe furthering a cause that's for your specific group, uh, but this is, this is what companies need to be doing. Institutions writ large should be doing. Right, so it's one way that you can help advance um, your your company and and your organization and make it better. So, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to also have the CDO sit on the AI monitoring committee as a liaison between these different community interests and the committee? And are you seeing that level of CDO involvement in the work that you do? Yeah, I can tell you from two perspectives. One is from ADP as a company. As an example, we have a partnership with our um, diversity and inclusion office as part of our development process. So we have a working group, then we'll take our prototypes, review it with our experts. So for example, things like what options around gender identification should we provide? And how do we, how can we standardize those options? What options should, right? What does that look like? Because that'll show up in your analytics, but it has to start at how it's captured, right? In yep. the system. So I feel like right now we're at a critical moment where those opportunities are there. For those of your listeners that would be in this chief diversity officer role, I think it's an opportunity to engage in those discussions to say, this is what we see the role of true impact for a chief diversity officer to be. And it may have been in this corner over here in the past, but this is where it can really have an impact. So let's pick one or two of those strategic areas and let's go. And I think that this is the, the moment is here. I'd say take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Now is definitely the time for CDOs to get in front of this before it spins out of control. But what about the resource group members themselves? In addition to providing input to the CDOs who can then bring it to the AI committees, what are some other ways that you advise them to get involved? For example, as an employee of the company, they will directly experience the results of decisions made by these systems. What can they do with that experience if they feel that one of these decisions is perhaps biased or off in some way? One is always, always ask the question of where is this data coming from? 
and understand the and, and understand that's uh, almost like there should almost be like a data bill of rights or something to say this is where my underlying data. So for example, we have this FCRA, the the uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, right, which allows you to be able to understand how credit decisions are made about me. And so I can ask for information about where did you get this of where I work or what my income is or, or all that. And I, and I can interrogate any credit decision that's made. Similarly, I should be able to see the underlying data because that gives me a chance to understand it and correct it if there's an issue. And how many times have we had to correct those things? And until we have that transparency, the data in the HR system won't be ac accurate enough to be able to right, make those decisions. And so you have to do that. So first and foremost is be willing to challenge the data used by a system to make a decision, ask questions about it. What's number two? Number two is think about, uh, there's really a lot of companies doing this. I know we're, just one of them, but they're always looking for pilot customers. Be involved in the pilot process, whether it's in the development of it or in the rollout of it, get involved in the pilots because that's when you're able to shape it. And ask when those things are happening because that's when people are looking for feedback. They're not taking it as criticism, taking it as a way to get better. And they're listening, that the ears are open for listening. So the second thing is see if your department is willing to become part of a pilot so that you can take a more active role in providing feedback while the system is being developed and everybody is open to feedback and input from the participants in that pilot. What's the third thing, I mean? The third thing is, and this may be long, longer term, but like career paths, like the, the role to get involved. There's so many people who can play a role in this group. Like I talked about, you can, there's maybe interest here of being able to be a data scientist. And we're always looking for qualified individuals who can do that. It's growing, but also that role of translator. And to say that you can take some of those interests and play in this group. So one, one role, like the, the group that I'm on, of product managers. Product management is more and more becoming that role of translator. Yeah. That can effectively understand the business, understand the context, and understand the, the, the technical details to translate between to know what should be focused on and what the implications for the customer are. And so that would be a great place also to start saying, can I play a role in this? My, in my career, not just in contributing, but in a career. Great advice. Those are all excellent ways of having an impact. So, I mean, as we get to the end of our interview, I wanted to get your thoughts on where we are now in this AI revolution. So earlier, we talked about how many people in organizations, including leaders, feel that these systems are super fair, bias-free decision makers. They're only dealing with just raw data. And of course, we know that that's not true. So why are we here now? And where are we headed from your perspective? I think what you're touching on is a fact of one of the things that we see in technology adoption. So I'll use a parallel context here um, that we can think about adoption curves of technology. Uh, so think about social media. And social media is another technology that, that everybody has been engaged with. Now think back with me, maybe about... 15 years ago, what was the sentiment around social media? It was fantastic, it's opening up the world, it's connecting us, uh, everything is, is, is great. It's, it's promoting democracy, it's helping us to have more clarity. Think about the conversation we're having today, 15 years or more into the social media. It's, 
And is it is it requiring me to be roped in? Uh, is it doing this to optimize its ads? Is this healthy for me? Where is the discussion that we had 15 years ago? We're in an adoption curve and you know it, it, it varies. Now, it's still true that a lot of those connection things are true, but we're recognizing the costs in a very new way. The same is true with AI. The same is true with machine learning. And we're earlier on the adoption curve. We're earlier on the adoption curve. So more what people are inclining to are the, the positive potentials of this. And, and now, and the good thing is now, uh, especially in this adoption curve, more of these questions like the, the conversation we're having and so many others that are happening, the, the recognition of the potential pitfalls are, are, have to be thought through. And I think that's where um, with any technology, you take the benefits, recognize the pitfalls, mitigate against them and get the best result of it. So that's, that's where I think we are. And that's why, I mean, that's how I interpret, at least my, my view on, on what you're seeing in the results. That makes sense. So, I mean, are there any resources out there that you would recommend to our listeners who want to dig deeper into this topic? Yeah, well, well, first, I mean, I think it's great. Forums like yours uh, where these discussions can happen are fantastic, right? Um, and, and there are many of them. So uh, the, the great work that you're doing, I think, is, is a good place to go. And and, and other, other podcasts that, that people can reach out to and listen. Um, I think that there's a few that uh, I might think of. So there's academic centers uh, are now creating more institutes uh, for, uh, for learning and on AI and ethics specifically. Just one example that, that you might, that listeners might wanna look at is um, the AI Now Institute at NYU. Uh, it's a, it's, I think it was founded just a few years ago um, from some uh, former, uh, you know, former research scientists from Google, another one from Microsoft, um, who have been in this space for quite some time. They're putting out some great research, um, and 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 there's one that other academic centers as well. But but that's a great locus of research and thinking and discussion that's happening. Um, another one, companies that are deeply involved in AI are creating public resources available. IBM AI Fairness. Uh, uh, efforts and and I think that they've put together a, a very good set of resources that that you can go and read um, and be able to play around with data sets um, and, and be able to engage with them. I think that's that's really helpful. Um, and for example, I mean from from ADP side, we've published our uh, um, ethics, our AI ethics and principles, right? So I think that's always something to be able to go and read and understand how a company approaches them and what you, what your organization could be doing, right? Uh, also think tanks, like I, uh, think tanks uh, ha have done some good work here. Um, Brookings Institute put out a good um, uh, I guess study on, on algorithmic bias um, about a year ago. And, and then there's also um, uh, an effort that I think folks could check out called Gender Shades. Um, it's an interesting one um, about uh, face, facial recognition algorithms. And, and how they uh, differently uh, predict and recognize faces across gender and race lines. And um, there's some, there's some, and it, it uses, you know, on the market algorithms, right? Uh, from a few different, from a few different companies. So, so very relevant, some very interesting uh, findings from that research. 
Um, and so all of those are, are resources that are out there. There's many more, but I think all of those could be, you know, just specific next steps to take. And I think the, the best thing is with curiosity today, you can, you can just, you know, find, find so much uh, that's out there. And I, personally, I, I'm interested in, in, in anybody who's, um, who's interested to learn more and dialogue on these topics. I, I'd love to be in touch. That's excellent. I mean, how can my listeners reach you if they want to take advantage of your generous offer? Yeah, I, I think I'd probably say LinkedIn is probably my favorite, my most preferred social network. I am on Twitter at Vinjara. I, I grabbed that last name. All my cousins are jealous. But <laughs> so you can reach me there. You can reach me at LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, feel free to email me as well, amin.vinjara at adp.com. Fantastic. I mean, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, great meeting you. Okay, so here's what I got out of this segment of my discussion with Amin. One, AI is not an easy topic, but you don't need to become a data scientist to make a difference. Two, rather than interfacing directly with the people who are working on the AI models, it seems that a better way to go is to work with the people who are the translators. These are the people who act as the bridge between the needs of the users and the data scientists who are building the models. Three, another is to connect with and provide input to the people who sit on the advising committees for these projects in your company. These are the people that are monitoring these AI tool rollouts and operations. Four, to find out if you have any of these committees that are monitoring your AI tools, ask your CDO or your head of IT or your head of legal. One of them should be able to tell you if you've got a committee and who's on that committee. And if you don't have one, consider recommending that the company form one. Five, once you find out who's on this committee, find out if they have any anti-bias statements and or language and metrics around how to mitigate bias built into their ethics documents. Six, don't be afraid or hesitant to question decisions coming out of big data or AI tools that affect you. Despite what some believe, these systems are not infallible and they're not bias-free. Seven, be on the lookout for opportunities for you or your group members, departments to participate in AI tool pilot programs. This is an opportunity to provide feedback when the people who are deploying these tools are really looking for it and listening for it. And finally, for those of you who want to get more deeply involved, eight. Consider becoming part of the team that builds the systems. Pursue the deployment of machine learning tools as a career so that you are in even a stronger position to shape these future decision-making tools. So the bottom line is that there are a lot of things that you can do. And as the leader of an employee community that cuts across every department in the organization, you really are in a perfect position to make a big difference in how equitable and inclusive these systems become. Don't shy away from exercising that platform. Remember the words of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, who once said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So let's predict the future where the robots and AI make our world more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive. And then let's go out there and get to work creating that beautiful world. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, contact me if you're looking for an ERG Symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop, 
new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharger ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.